it's a whole chapter, another chapter of genealogy. This is not the first one we've encountered. You remember chapter 5 was much that way also. So the challenge is just trying to pronounce the names. How many of the names do we actually even try to pronounce? And um, But, you know, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable, isn't it? It's profitable to us. And so... Uh, as is our pattern, we don't, we don't try to gloss over these sections, but we try to deal with them. And I will tell you, we're not going to read every verse. And um, I, I'll give you, that's good news ahead of time. Otherwise, you would just hear me just uh, failing miserably throughout the chapter. I have read it several times, and each time I read it differently because I pronounce the names differently. But um, those of you who are able, if you'd stand with me, we're going to read a few verses, and then we will pray and begin our study. Genesis chapter 10, verse 1. Now this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah. Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and sons were born to them after the flood. In verse 3, it begins to list the sons of Japheth, Gomer, and Magog, and Madai, and Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tiras. And then you get down to verse 6, and it says, the sons of Ham were Cush, Mizram, Put, and Canaan. And then you get over to the verse of 22, we have the third son, the sons of Shem, were Elam, Asher, Arphaxed, Lud, and Aram. Verse 32 says, these were the families of the sons of Noah, according to their generations, in their nations, and from these the nations were divided on the earth after the flood. Father, uh, we do know that all Scripture, Lord, is given by inspiration from you, Lord, and it's profitable, Lord, for doctrine, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. And Lord, we pray this morning that, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, that that you would illuminate our minds and help us, Lord, to understand the purpose for which you recorded Genesis chapter 10, Lord, that we might get our hands around that and that, Lord, that we would be able to, to see Christ, Lord, in this text and that, Lord, that our minds would be lifted up, Lord, off of the, uh, just the, the, the present, Lord, worries and concerns and, and troubles that we all deal with, that, Lord, that we might have hope in you, we ask in all God's people said. Amen. You all can be seated. So this chapter is known as the table of nations, table meaning list or record of nations. And the purpose of this chapter is given at the very beginning, the very first verse and the very last verse, which I've already read. I'm going to read it to you again. Chapter, verse one says, this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Hem, and Japheth. And sons were born to them after the flood. So this has given us the genealogy that came from Noah's three sons. And in verse 32 at the end, it says, These were the families of the sons of Noah according to their generations in the nations. And from these, the nations were divided or spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So the purpose of chapter 10 is to explain how the earth was repopulated after the flood by the descendants of Noah's three sons. You remember because only Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives survived the flood. All others were destroyed in the flood. And so it brings us from the flood to our present day situation with all the earth being populated by different tribes and tongues and peoples. But there's a greater purpose also in this chapter. Remember that Moses is the is the one who writes the book of Genesis. And he's writing to a specific people. He's writing to Israel. Remember, Israel has been delivered from their bondage in Egypt. They've been taken out over the Red Sea. Now they're out in their wilderness wanderings. They're going to be there for 40 years. And he's preparing them to go into the land that God has promised them, the land of Canaan. And it's occupied by enemies. Enemies that God has given 400 years to repent of their wickedness. And we talked about that last week, so I won't rehash that. But he's preparing them to go in. And he wants Israel to see these nations that they're going to be interacting with throughout their history. 
And that he also wants them to see, even more importantly that, that Israel was God's chosen means to bring the hope of salvation, not just to the nation of Israel, but to all the nations, that the Messiah would come through them and that he would bring hope to all the nations. So probably the easiest way I can think of to cover chapter 10 is to put up a couple of slides. Stephen, let's see what we can do here. Maybe let's go ahead and turn the stage lights off for a little bit. So we'll just leave that up there for just a few minutes as I kind of talk about the, the, an overview of the chapter here. So Noah's three sons, Noah and the ark, you remember it settles in the mountains of Ararat, somewhere probably in modern-day Turkey. And from there, his three sons, Japheth, Ham, and Shem, they spread abroad. Now, Japheth, as you'll notice up there, he goes to the most, most distant lands from where the ark settled. The descendants of Japheth, they settled to the north of the mountains of Ararat. Uh, they, they, they settled to the north, they settled to the, to the west, and also to the east. So they're, they're above the Black Sea, above the Caspian Sea. They're in the Mediterranean region. They go as far over here as Spain, and they're the Gentile nations. And we're told there in verse 2 that those were his sons, Gomer and Magog, and these are the nations that come from him. Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, Tiras, down to verse 5. From these, the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. Now, the descendants of Japheth, they spoke the, what's called the Indo-European languages. That would, have been, that would include, uh, and that makes up like 50% of the human population that descend from Japheth. That's Spanish, Italian, uh, French, German, Gaelic, English, Hindi, uh, Farsi, Russian. That's a major people group that descended from Japheth. And, and he takes over a huge portion just as Noah had prophesied back in chapter 9 that his tents would be enlarged. Do you remember what he said about him? Next we see Ham's descendants. They migrate primarily to the south. There in verse 6, we're told that the sons of Ham were Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. And if you look on down into verse 14, we also see that the Philistines came from them. And also Canaan, you remember, we talked about him last week. He begot Sidon, Tyre and Sidon up in modern-day Lebanon, uh, the firstborn of Heth. And then the Jebusite, you remember the Jebusites? We're going to deal with them way on as we get into the other parts of the Old Testament. But uh, they would have been the ones who dwelt around modern, you know, what was uh, Jerusalem at that time and what is Jerusalem at this time also. The Jebusites, the Amorite, the Girgashite, the Hivite, the Archite, and the Sinite. And afterward, the families, verse 18, of the Canaanites were dispersed. And the border of the Canaanites were from Sidon, as far as you go from Gerar and, and all the way down to Gaza, towards Sodom and Gomorrah. And these were the sons, verse 20, of Ham, according to their families, according to their language, in the lands and their nations. Now, as I said, they settled mostly to the south, but they, they, they settled in, in north, uh, the north and the northeast part of Africa, they settled in Egypt, and they also settled the eastern Mediterranean, what would be today uh, known as uh, Israel and Lebanon and those areas. And they are the people that are most closely, that, that Israel will most closely interact with. That's why he goes to this whole list of people, the, the descendants of the Canaanites, because when they go into the land of Canaan, they're going to deal with all these different people that descended from Ham. Now, in the midst of Ham's descendants, you'll notice that Moses gives an extended uh, dealing with one of his descendants, a guy by the name of Nimrod in verse 8. Cush begot Nimrod. It says that he became a mighty one on the earth. 
And he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and, and Kauna and the land of Shinar. And from the land he went to Assyria and he built Nineveh, Rehoboth and Kelah. And Nineveh being his principal city in verse 12, we're told there. So several verses are devoted to one of Ham's descendants. That's Nimrod. And several verses are devoted to him because he's the founder of some very principal cities that Israel is going to interact with in their history, that being Babel, which is what we would call Babylon, and another one being Nineveh. You remember Jonah is sent to Nineveh, but then later Nineveh, uh, Assyria comes, both Assyria comes first when Israel is disobedient and they come into the northern part of Israel and they cart them off captive in the first wave of persecution against them for their disobedience. Later in five, you know, 606 BC, we see that Assyria comes in in 722 BC and I think uh, Babylon comes in in about uh, 606 with Nebuchadnezzar and he comes in and God uses them to discipline Israel for their disobedience to him and they've neglected the Sabbath, they've neglected the worship of him. Now, he's described, Nimrod is described here as a mighty hunter before the Lord, and that's of great controversy uh, what that means. It could mean that he was a great sportsman, a great hunter. He was great at bagging deer, you know, that type of thing. And you put a, you put a, you know, a crossbow in that guy's arm and he could, you know, he could, he could hit a deer, you know, at, a, at, at 200 yards, that type of thing. But more likely, it doesn't mean that for all of you hunters out there. You're thinking, man, that Nimrod, he's my hero. Nimrod is probably not the guy you want to be your hero. More likely, it means that he was not a hunter of game, but a hunter of men. He was a tyrant, ruthlessly conquering men to establish an empire, Babel. He's associated with Babel, with the Tower of Babel, which we'll get into in chapter 11. And he's associated with Nineveh and these empires that are going to be um, uh, conquering Israel. And it makes sense that this is probably the right interpretation that he's a conqueror of men, a tyrant rather than, you know, a great hunter of, of animals, because Nimrod, his name means let us rebel. And he was a man, mighty before the Lord. I mean, he was mighty in his rebellion before the Lord. Lastly, we come to the descendants of Shem. Verse 21, it says, The children that were born also to Shem, the father of the children of Eber, the brother of Japheth the elder. These are the sons of Shem, were Elam, Asher, Arphaxad, Lud, and Aram. And then we're told that our facts had begot Salah, Salah begot Ibar, and Eber was born. He had two sons. His name, one of them was Peleg, not Pegleg, but Peleg. For in his days, the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. And these were the families of Shem, verse 31 says, according to their families, according to their languages, and their lands, according to their nations. So, the descendants of Shem are what we call the Semitic people, right? You've heard the term anti-Semitism when it deals with you know, people that uh, persecute the Jews because they're a Semitic people. But they're not the only Semitic people. And, and, and though they, you know, the, the, the descendants of Shem settled primarily in what we would call the Middle East, uh, the Semitic languages include Arabic, uh, Amharic, which is uh, more northern Africa, um, Ethiopia, um, and also, of course, Hebrew. Now, you'll notice that there's one guy whose name is mentioned at least three times. He's very prominent in the verses of, of Shem's descendants, and his name is Eber or Eber, whichever one you prefer to pronounce it like. But he's prominent in these verses because he is that Abraham's descended through him. In other words, the promise that God has made that he's going to bring an, an offspring who will crush the head of serpent and redeem and rescue his people is going to come through Shem, through Eber, and all the way down through Abraham. Now, note one other thing about the descendants of Shem. Notice a guy by the name of Peleg there. And it says of him, for that in his days the earth was divided. Uh, 
it's kind of a play on words because Peleg, his name means division. So division in his name, in his day, the, the, the nations were, the earth was divided. Now, this could refer to a specific event such as, you know, um, uh, the splitting of the continents, which would have occurred after the flood and after all the upheaval that the earth has gone under. And, and you, know, the, the, you know, they believe that the continents were all together at one time. And, that, of course, that they've, they've shifted so it could mean that there was a specific event, that, you know, the continental uh, shift and splitting that took place. But, but in context, it seems like it's more likely referring to a division or a scattering of people that took place at the Tower of Babel. So in other words, they get off the ark. You've got Japheth, Shem, and Ham there, and everybody's dwelling near the, the mountains of Ararat. And then you've got guys like Nimrod who are going out to build these cities in that general area there of, of Nineveh and Babel. And they all want to stay together. But what has God told them to do? He said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. In other words, go out from here. But in their rebellion, remember Nimrod, probably the leader of this rebellion, let us rebel against God. I don't want to go out. We're going to stay here. I'm going to build an empire. So it was during the days of Peleg that the Tower of Babel happened and the dispersion probably took place. That's probably what it's referring to. You can throw up the next slide just to kind of give them an idea of where some of these specific people settled. So you'll notice here in Africa, you have the, the descendants of, uh, of Ham along with Canaan. And then, of course, there in Europe and uh, Asia and also down here in India, you have the descendants of Japheth. And then the descendants of Shem stayed right around the Middle Eastern region there. So let's turn the lights back on, shut the slides off. Now, so what we have here in the table of nations is Noah's response to God's command in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, which said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. That's what's happening here with the table of nations. So from the mountains of Ararat, where the ark, uh, you know, uh, lighted on, the descendants of Noah's sons begin to spread abroad. They begin to take that promise and that command, and they begin to spread out over the earth. And over time, they continue to migrate to the ends of the earth. And in this, as we said last week, that, you know, we didn't get here by accident into America, Right? People didn't get into India by accident or Australia and these, you know, these far-flung places in China and all these little islands in Hawaii and different places like that. But, but we're all descended from either Shem, Ham, or Japheth. Ultimately, we're descended from Noah and all the way back to Adam, right? But, but, but the point is, is this chapter reminds us that there's a unity of mankind, that we all have the same ancestry. We weren't, we weren't, the earth wasn't populated by aliens from other distant galaxies far away. We're not hobbits, but we came from these three. And this tells us the dispersion, the, re, the population that took place, or the repopulation of the earth that took place in command, in obedience to the command in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. So the point being this, that once again, we are all related to one another, regardless of skin color, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of the way we look, we're all descended from one another, we're all related to one another, we all descended from these three sons through Noah all the way back to Adam. In other words, our DNA all comes from the same source. So we are related to one another, regardless of the way we look outwardly. Inwardly, we have the same blood, so to speak. And ultimately, as we trace our, our, our family tree back and all these different limbs, right? They, they, they have all these different branches, and they come back to three which are the three sons of Noah, and then they come back to Noah, and then they come back to Adam being at the kind of the base of the trunk, if you will. But at the root, what gave life to Adam? Who gave life to Adam is the better question. God did. So ultimately, we can trace our roots back 
beyond Adam all the way to God because he created man in his image. He gave us life, and because he gave us life, we are responsible to him. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul said when he was preaching on Mars Hill to to, to those who were living in Athens at the time. You remember when they had all these statues to these different gods, and there was even one that that was a statue, and it was labeled to the unknown God in case we've missed one. And he began to preach to them, he says in Acts chapter 17, and he says, And God has made from one blood or from one man every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. And has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. For in him we live and we move and we have our being. He says also, as some of your poets have said, for we are also his offspring. So the apostle Paul says that he makes the point that we just made there that we all are related to one another. And ultimately, we're God's offspring. So, he speaks of this. Genesis 10 speaks of this. The Apostles Paul, Paul speaks of this. This, you know, that we're, we're united in our ancestry. And we're united in our relationship to God, our responsibility to God. But, but the truth is, though, that we're so united by our DNA, and by the fact that we were made in the image of God, we can't overlook the fact that we're divided. We're divided by geography. We're divided by language. We're divided, divided by ethnicity. We're divided by culture. But what is the thing that divides us the most? Sin. Sin is what divides us the most, right? Because if sin wasn't a problem... Geography, culture, ethnicity, language wouldn't be an issue. It wouldn't be a, a division. But sin makes it worse. You see, because that's what sin does. You remember that God told Adam and Eve in the garden, he says, in the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely what? Die. And what does that word, what does he mean there? When it went, what does death mean there? Separation, Exactly. In the day that you eat of this tree, here's what's going to happen. You're going to be separated from me, and you're going to be separated from each other. There's going to be a division comes, a division between between us and our relationship, and a division between you and your wife, between you and your fellow humans. That's what sin does. Sin messes everything up, and he warned them of that. And so that's what the fall did. The fall affected not only Adam and Eve's, relationship with God and with one another. But because we are their offspring, we share their DNA. That the curse or the tainted blood, if you will, was passed on to you and I. And so we have the same problem. Sin has separated us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're we're all separated from him. And it affects not only our relationship with him, but our relationship with one another. And we see that, don't we? We see that division, not only between us and God, but we really see it on a daily basis But between us as humans, don't we? We see the groanings of sin and separation. You know, in the past year, you know, we've had the Black Lives Matter, you know, the protests, Right? And I'm not here to say yay or nay or good or bad. That's not my point. But in the midst of the rumblings of that, what you hear is you hear people, you hear humans who are made in the image of God, who are crying out and who are groaning over the fact that there is separation. We're not viewed the same as others. We're not viewed equally. And that's a, that's a right groaning. Now, whether that's expressed right or not, we can, that's another discussion. And then, of course, you know, on the heels of that became blue lives matter, right? Black lives matter, blue lives matter. And then, then we have now the women 
Our lives matter too, right? Well, they, they're all groanings. They, they all come from the same premise, which is screaming out that the groanings of, of the human condition, the fall has affected us, and we're not being treated right. And of course, that's what, that's what prompts the, you know, the pro-life movement, right? Babies matter too. They're created in the image of God. When conception takes place, God has given life. And, and, and we're mistreating, we're abusing, we're looking at them as, as they're, they're, they're not even life itself, but they're just blobs. And what about men? Don't we matter too? Where's our movement? <laughs> I'm not trying to make light of these things. These are, these are real groanings. Listen, these are real groanings from real people who live in a fallen world. And they're expressing the pain and the suffering that takes place because of what sin has done to us. And, 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 there's, a, and there's, a, there's a core truth in there. There's, there's something that's right about it in the sense that I think people get at a, at a real basic level that somehow or another that we are related to one another, right? And then you look at Syria. And you look at them as best information that we have today is, you know, that they attack their own people using chemical warfare, sarin gas on their own people, moms and dads and children, just horrible suffering death. And we look at that and we can't stand back whether it's there or whether it's North Korea or whether it's anywhere. We can't stand back and say, well, that's their problem, right? No, we're related. It's not just a Syrian problem. It's not just a North Korean problem. It's a world problem. Why? Because as God came to Cain after he had killed his brother, and he says, where's your brother? And what did did Cain say? He says, am I my brother's keeper? What's the answer to that? Yes, we are brothers. Why are we our brother's keeper? Because we're related to one another. We share the same DNA. We're all created in the image of God. We're one big family, not maybe one big happy family, but we are one family of people. And we're all in the same mess together because of sin. And I think, you know, as I look around the room and some of you young people and and you look at the world that you live in, and you look at life before you, and and it can be discouraging. It can even be downright depressing to look at this world and the mess that it's in, or or maybe, uh, you know, not necessarily the younger people, but the rest of us. Or maybe even you younger people, you look, at, you look at your mom and dad's marriage, and it's messed up. It's broken. You look at your families, and sometimes it's like, and, and sin affects our families, right? And it separates our families. That's what sin does. Sin messes up our marriages. It messes up our families. It messes up everything. And it almost seems like, you know, here we are, we're a people that are united because of our DNA, we all descended from these three all the way back to Noah and back to Adam. We're so united and we're made in the image of God, yet we're so divided, so separated because of sin. And we're looking everywhere for answers, aren't we? We're thinking somehow, some way, the government's going to fix all this for us and, and we're going we're gonna to live. And, you know, I mean, the hippies tried that, right? Every generation has tried some way in its human efforts to fix the sin problem. But what is the answer? What is the solution for a people that are so united yet so divided? A people that are so united yet so separated from God, so separated from one another. What is the solution? Well, I think this chapter reminds us of God's heart for the nations, that there is hope for the nation. And the solution is really, it's, it's embedded deep 
in the beginning of the book of Genesis, as we've talked about many of times, that after Adam and Eve sinned, that God did not leave Adam and Eve without hope, did he? He gave them a promise. He said, yes, there's going to be pain in childbirth, Eve, but from you and Adam is going to come an offspring. There's going to be this perpetual battle between your seed, Eve, the seed of man, and the seed of the serpent, the devil. This ongoing conflict, which we feel every day. But one's going to come from you, one of your offspring, that is going to crush the head of the serpent, who is going to whip the devil and defeat him. And he's going to deal with sin, and he's going to redeem man, he's going to rescue him, and he's going to restore him back to the wonderful, sweet fellowship and unity that there was in the Garden of Eden in the presence of God before sin existed. And the solution, of course, we know is the cross. The only hope for Adam and Eve, who were separated from God and who were separated from each other by sin, was that the offspring that God had promised them would come and rescue them and restore them. And so they had hope early on at the very beginning, at the infancy, the the origin of sin, God also infused it with great hope. Now, and because we're descended from Adam and Eve, we've all inherited their DNA, their fallen nature. Thus, we are in the same boat. We're separated from God. We're separated from each other. And the remedy for us is the same, the same remedy it was for them is the same for us. There, there aren't two different remedies. That's why John in his gospel goes to make the point over and over again about Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? I am the door. There's not many doors. I am the good shepherd. I am the vine. In other words, there's no place else to look. There aren't many solutions. There's one solution for man's problem of separation from God and separation from one another, and that's Christ. Now, so God made this promise early on in Genesis chapter 3 that he was going to send one who would, would come from the offspring of Adam and Eve to redeem us. And how God did that, and he preserved the godly line, if you will, that the Messiah would come through, how he did that through the book of Genesis is one of its great themes. And, and, as, you, and as you look at it, it, it makes you just stand in awe to see God's plan unfold. Because as you look at, as you look at it, begin to unfold, you, at every section you begin to think, oh my goodness, God's plan is in jeopardy. How is this going to happen? Man has messed it up again. But yet, if we can get our eyes off of man and we can lift him up to the Lord, we see our great covenant-keeping God being faithful to the promise that he made in Genesis 3.15, and nothing is going to thwart his plan or his promise. Well, as I mentioned This sin that separates us from God and separates us from one another, it hasn't always been that way. In the beginning, Adam and Eve had sweet fellowship with God in the Garden of Eden. Unhindered, unaffected by sin, by the fall. And to maintain that, all they had to do was to obey God, right? Adam and Eve, listen, you can, here's this garden, I've created it for you to enjoy, to experience at its fullest and, and to and experience and enjoy me to your fullest. There's one thing I want you to not do. He, he gave them all these things they could do, but only one prohibition, right? Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But the day that you do it, you shall surely die. It will affect our relationship and it'll affect your relationship. It'll make a mess of everything. And as you know, that sweet fellowship didn't continue because they disobeyed. 
and the result was death, separation from, uh, between them and God and, and each other. You remember before the fall, they were naked and not ashamed. But then after the fall, they had to be clothed, didn't they? There was a separation, already a covering between them, a distancing between them because of sin. But God didn't leave them without hope. He promised that one of their offspring would be God's solution to man's problem. And you remember as Adam and Eve had their first two children, Cain and Abel, their hopes were high, weren't they? Their hopes were high that maybe one of these two children would be the one that that God had promised that would redeem us and rescue us. It would be the Savior. But one of those sons was of his father, the devil, wasn't he? Cain. And he struck his brother Abel and killed him. And his life faded from Abel's eyes. God's promise appeared to go dark. But in due time, after they had grieved, Eve conceived again and she bore a son. And what was his name? Seth. You ought to know these things right off the top of your head by now. You'd probably be sick of them, aren't you? But Seth. And we're told of Seth that his descendants began to worship the Lord, didn't they, in contrast to Cain's descendants. Well, both of these descendants, Cain and and Seth, began to multiply. But sadly, the line of Cain corrupted the line of Seth to the point that we're told in Genesis chapter 6 that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And every intent of the thoughts and heart was only evil continually, right? And the covenant hope that God had made, the promise that he had made in Genesis chapter 3 to Adam and Eve, it seemed doomed. It seemed that there was no hope. It seemed ruin. But there was one who survived from the line of Seth, the godly line, who found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And who was that? Noah, exactly. He alone, we're told, was a righteous man, blameless in his generations in contrast to all the others, the rest of the line of Seth and all those of the line of Cain. The line of Cain, the seed of the serpent, had so corrupted the godly line that God came and destroyed them all, all except for Noah his wife, their three sons, and their wives. And they survived the flood. And the fact that they survived the flood is proof that God's promise endured, right? That there was still hope. The godly line of Seth was intact. But make no mistake about it, so was the seed of the serpent. Both lines were present. This perpetual conflict was going to continue. And both lines were present in the sons of Noah. And we see that in that the godly line continues through Shem and through Japheth, and then the ungodly through Ham. But primarily, the covenant promise that God made with Adam and Eve was narrowed down to one of those sons, and that being Shem. And from Shem's five sons, it was narrowed down to Eber, and to Peleg, as you read on in Genesis chapter 11, the last half of the chapter is given the rest of the genealogy of Shem's descendants, from Eber to Peleg to Ru to Sarug to Nahor to Terah, and then to Terah's son, Abraham. And you remember the, the, the covenant promise that God made with Abraham? He says there in chapter 12, Verse 2, he says, Abraham, he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the nations, all the families, 
The blessing comes through Abraham. So in Abraham, the covenant promise is intact. The promise that he made, the solution to man's problem, given in Genesis chapter 3, it's intact. It has survived. God has been faithful. But there's one huge problem when we get to Abraham. How can he be a blessing to all the families of the earth when he doesn't even have any kids? He's childless. And Abraham's wife is barren, Sarah. But we have to remember that God's promises aren't hindered by our inabilities, are they? And in due time, God blessed Abraham and Sarah with a child. You remember, he he told them, I'm going to give you a child. He told Abraham, and he laughed. Sarah overhears the promise that God makes to Abraham, and she laughs too. You know what they named their son? What was the name of the son? Isaac. And you know what his name means? Laughter. Exactly. But they had another son before that, didn't they? As they tried in their own efforts. Or as Jason said this morning up here, our own efforts, we become crawling and, 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 and clawing and striving in our own, in our own you know, uh, human efforts to try to make things happen. Ishmael was produced from that. And so we see the conflict continues on. Ishmael and Isaac, right? Well, Isaac grows up and he marries a gal by the name of who? Do you remember who he married? Rebecca. Yeah, Rebecca. But here's another problem. She's barren too. But God opened her womb. And she conceived twins. Do you remember those twins' names? Jacob and Esau. And once again, the perpetual conflict between the offspring of Satan and the offspring of Eve is alive and well, isn't it? In these two sons. The battle continues. Well, Jacob grows up and he's smitten with a gal by the name of Rachel. You remember her dad, Laban, made a deal with Jacob. He said, you work for me for seven years and you can marry Rachel. So he does. He works his heart out for seven years. But Laban didn't keep his promise, did he? When Jacob goes into his tent after the, after the marriage ceremony, he goes in and wakes up in the morning. He thought he's been with Rachel. Who was he with? He was with Leah. Laban had married off his older daughter. Jacob said, dang, that's bad. (laughs) So he worked another seven years so that he could marry Rachel. Laban said, look, you know, okay. Here's the deal. Work another seven years, you 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 can marry Rachel. And he did that, and he married Rachel. And at first, Rachel too was barren, unable to have children. And so, kind of like Sarah did, she gave her maidservants to Jacob to conceive on her behalf and that the children would be hers. And she had two maidservants and two sons were born to each of those maidservants. But God eventually opened Rachel's womb and she bore a son by the name of Joseph and she went on to bear three others. But the promise wasn't through any of her sons. The promise was through her older sister, Leah. She had born a son. She bore four sons herself. And one of those sons was who? Who was the promise through? Do you remember? Judah. Exactly. You guys are a sharp, sharp bunch. The line of the tribe of Judah. You remember Jacob prophesied that the scepter would never depart from him. In other words, the Messiah would come through him. Now, you're talking about a shaky character and shaky ground, Judah. The covenant promise seems to be on real shaky ground with this guy, with Judah. For starters, Judah doesn't marry a fellow Israelite. He marries a Canaanite woman, right? And by her, he has three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah, or however you want to pronounce it. Well, Ur married a girl by the name of Tamar. But it was a short marriage, 
because all we're told is, is that Ur was wicked and the Lord put him to death. We'll deal with that when we get there. Looks like chapter 38. So, the responsibility went to the next brother, the kinsman redeemer who was supposed to, the next brother in line was supposed to come in and fulfill the obligations for the brother who had died and to give him, give him children that would carry on his brother's name and the inheritance would go to those children and not to his children. And that brother was Onan. He was the second in line and he was not about to fulfill his responsibility. You remember the scripture says that he spilled his seed on the ground and what did God do to him? He put him to death, right? He was wicked also. So we're down to the last son. We're down to the last of Judah's sons, and he's just a kid at the time. Shelah. He was only a young boy at the time, and when he matured to the age of being able to marry, Judah reneged on his promise to Tamar, and he did not give Shelah to her as husband, as the kinsman redeemer. And so it seemed at this point that the biological possibilities for the covenant line to continue and for the promise to continue that God made to Adam and Eve was about zero because there was no descendants. But Tamar was crafty and she devised a plan. And she wasn't concerned about the covenant as much as she was concerned about her own status. I've been wronged, and I should have a husband, and I should have some children by now. I mean, you think about the status of being a woman in that day and not having children was a horrible stigma. And so the plan that she came up with is that she disguised herself to look like a Canaanite prostitute. And she sat by the roadside, and Judah, her father-in-law, her, her, Judah's wife had just died. He was recently widowed. And Judah comes along and he propositions Tamar. He didn't know who she was. She's clothed like a prostitute and her face is covered. Well, from that proposition, Tamar conceived and she gave birth to twins, Perez and Zerah. Now, one of those sons fits into the covenant promise. It's Perez. Now, Judah, we got to stop for just a second here, back up for just a second. Because before Perez was even born, you remember that it was Judah has a brother. Matter of fact, he's got 12 brothers, the 12 tribes of Jacob, right? And Judah, one of those brothers is Joseph. So as they're growing up in the home, they don't like Joseph, you remember? He's daddy's little favorite. He always tells on them. He gets the coat of many colors, and they just get the normal coat, right, from Costco or Walmart. <laughs> well, they didn't like him, and so they plotted this plan that they were going to go out and kill him. And, and they, but it was Judah who came up with the idea while Reuben was gone away from them. He says, we should profit from this. Let's sell this guy. And so there were some Midianite traders coming along, and they, they, they sold him for 20 pieces of silver. And you remember what they did with him? They took Joseph to Egypt. And they thought, well, he's good as dead. And that's what they told their father, uh, Jacob, that he was dead. But God had a plan, didn't he? God had a plan to preserve his people and to keep his promise. Joseph is promoted to the number two man in all of Egypt. And he comes up with this idea that, you know, that God shows him in this dream that there's going to be this famine. And it's not just going to affect Egypt. It's going to affect even the land of Canaan where his dad and his family and his brothers are all at. And the famine is going to be so severe that you would die if you didn't stock up and supply for it. So he stores up during these seven good years, you're right, because the, the famine lasts for seven years itself. So seven good years are plenty, and then there's seven bad years. Well, Jacob and his family, even though they're God's people, they're not exempt from the famine, are they? They're not exempt from, from, the, from the lack of food and the lack of bread within the land of Canaan. So they send their son, he sends their sons, and Judah was one of them. He sends them down into Egypt. I hear that they've got bread down there. They've got grain. Go get us some. Take some money and, and, and take, some, take some camels and, and fill them up. Fill up the bags and bring them back home. And you all know the whole story there. I won't go into it. But God used Joseph to preserve the godly line. 
if it hadn't for Joseph down there that they had done wrong against, Perez, who was born back up in the land of Canaan at that time or in Israel, they would have died. But God had a plan to preserve, and Joseph was the plan. He's not the promised line. He's not the one that the covenant would come through, but he was the one that preserved the one that the covenant would come through. And so then Jacob and his family, they moved to Egypt, and thus the covenant promise was intact, and things looked good. They lived in the land of Goshen. They multiplied, and then what happened? Pharaoh said, hey, man, these guys are getting out of control. There's too many of them. Let's begin to kill the, you know, the, the, the sons. Every, every male, male child is born, let's kill them. And, of course, you remember the story there that Moses is delivered from that, and he goes and is grown, grows up in Pharaoh's house. Now, he's not from the tribe of Judah, is he? He's from the tribe of Levi. He's not who the promise came through. But he's the one who preserved the promise and that God raised him up to bring Israel out of there, didn't he? And to bring them into the land that he had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you look at all that and you say, what an awesome God we have. That he, he works his plan out, not apart from human history, but right in the middle of human history and, 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 and right in the middle of politics and, and tragedies and surprises and the schemings of fallen man. God works out his plan. But that brings us back to where we started and as we're going to close with is, so then what hope? What hope is there for the nations that descended from Noah's three sons? What, what hope is there for us? What, what hope is there for a world that's so united by our common DNA, our common ancestry, and in our responsibility to God, and that we're image bearers, but yet we're so separated from God and so separated from one another by sin? What's the solution? What hope is there? And once again, our hope is not in human government, Though we're thankful for government, God gives it. It's a gift to us. We pray for our leaders. But our hope is not in government. Our hope is not in the schemes of fallen men to bring peace or to unite mankind. And we all sing kumbaya around the campfire. And that's important to remember, especially if you're young. You're going to be tempted to put your hope in men and in movements, and you will be sorely disappointed. But God promised Abraham that through him, all families of the earth would be blessed. And that was fulfilled in the ultimate seed of the offspring of Adam and Eve, because that line was preserved all the way through Genesis, all the way through the Old Testament to the New Testament, which is Christ. And if you read Luke chapter 3 at the end there, it gives the genealogy that he came from, and it brings you right back to Genesis chapter 10 and 11 and the descendants of Shem. God preserved the line. God preserved and kept his promise that Christ is the solution. He's the remedy for our sin that separated us from God, and he's the remedy for, for our sin that separates us from one another. Jesus is the ultimate hope for the nations that descended from Noah's three sons. We're told in Matthew 28, you remember, the, the Great Commission, that he's been crucified, he's been raised again, he's got the disciples together, and now he is commissioning them to send them out. And he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of who? All nations. Do, do, do you think that's just coincidental? All nations. God's heart for the nations. Baptizing them. He says, this is the solution. They, they need the gospel. The promise was to come through Israel. I'm the promise. Born of man, but born of a woman. Or born, of, born, of, born of woman, but also born of God. He had to be related to us because he's the offspring of Eve. But if he was only the offspring of Eve, then his DNA would be tainted and messed up and he couldn't save us because God wouldn't accept the sacrifice. He also had to be born of God. 
baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things I have commanded to you. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And Jesus says, I am the solution. I am the solution to man's problem of their separation from God and their separation from one another. The gospel, there is one solution and one solution only. And it is Christ and him crucified for our sins. His blood spilled for the remission of our sin. Let me close with this one verse here. Because I want you to see in the eternal life in heaven, when you get to Revelation chapter 22, it says this. John says that God showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, this is the key here, in the middle of the street, on either side of the river was the tree of life. Wasn't that there in the garden with Adam and Eve before they sinned? And if they had just keep eating of that tree and not of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would have lived forever and there wouldn't have been death. There wouldn't have been separation from God. There wouldn't have been separation from one another. Sin wouldn't have come in. But there it is again, the tree of life. And it bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. And notice what it says here. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. You see, you see the hope for the nations? Well, it's not just eating leaves off of a tree. It's Christ. Things have been restored. The promise that he gave, the hope that he gave in Genesis chapter 3 is fulfilled in Christ. And so in heaven, he's restored it all back to the Garden of Eden. And those who have trusted in him, in his work on the cross, that he's the solution, there we are together with God. There's no more pain. There's no more crying. There's no more sin. There's no more separation from a God. We're united with God and we're united with one of the healing of the nations. There should be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. And there shall be no more night, no need of lamp, nor the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Just like Adam and Eve, God intended for Adam and Eve in the garden that they would live forever and ever and ever. But sin came in and messed it all up. But God promised a solution, and he fulfilled that promise. And the solution is Christ and him crucified for you and I. So that's a good place to stop. Just stand with me as you go out with prayer. If you're struggling this morning and you're looking to this world to give you hope, I say this with great compassion and great care for you, that you're going to be sorely disappointed. You're going to be discouraged. You will be depressed. You will be defeated. You'll see no reason for living, and you will lose all hope. But God gave the solution in Genesis chapter 3. And the entire Bible is the unfolding of that solution. Fulfilled in the promised seed from Adam and Eve, which is the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And in him is our redemption, our rescue, our restoration to right relationship with him and with one another. Now, does that mean that when we trust in him, that automatically all of our prejudices that we have because of skin color or cultures or languages, does that mean all that begin, just drops immediately? No. But what it does mean is that he begins to give us a new, he gives us a new heart and a new mind the mind of Christ, to begin to think differently about one another, to look differently at one another, to be, be able to see that, that we were all created in his image, that we're brothers and sisters in Christ, and that if we're believers in him, we're going to be with him for eternity. 
And this begins to be a proving ground for growing in the mind of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we stand in awe of you this morning of your great unfolding plan, Lord, the scarlet cord of redemption, Lord, throughout Scripture. Your faithfulness to your covenant promise to Adam and Eve to bring one who would come from them who would deal with our sin problem. Thank you for sending your son who gave his life, Lord, that we might have eternal life and that we might have forgiveness and that we might have right relationship with you and with one another. Thank you, Lord, for the hope that there is for the nations in Christ's finished work on the cross. Lord, may you grow us in that grace and in that truth. We ask in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen, amen.